0: Hello and welcome back to the Growing Revolution. I'm Eric Olson with Smart Pot Fabric Planters, and this week our guest is Alexandria Irons, who goes by Queen of the Sungrown on Instagram. She's a consultant and teacher who focuses on growing sustainably and affordably. She's a big Smart Pot fan, and her outlook on agriculture is something that we wanted to promote. So, Alexandria, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here today.
0: Yes, thank you for uh, making the time on this Monday morning. So, um, your background is in ecology. How did your journey in the industry begin, and uh, where did you gain your knowledge?
1: Okay, so I've been smoking weed since I was 14. So <laughs> I'd say um, that was the beginning of my, you know, relationship with cannabis, and. It really, really helped me work through, um, you know, some emotional struggles, that teenage angst, depression, anxiety, and I just saw how using it with, um, you know, intention and focus and really using it as medicine helped me and helped so many people around me. I grew up in California, so it was legal pretty much my entire life. And I am very grateful and lucky that I didn't have that stigma surrounding it. And my family was very open. Um, But my professional um, introduction was actually in 2016, 2015, I started dating someone who had a Prop 215 medical grow. And so we had a prescription for 99 plants, and we were growing, you know, 99 plants in the garage, eight lights, and started developing a brand together. We got into dispensaries all across Northern California, And it was just my passion. I mean, I went to school for, like you said, ecology is my background. Um, I have a degree in natural science and I worked for the Nature Conservancy. And so I saw what my boyfriend at the time was doing, growing cannabis, salt-based, inside, very unnatural and completely um, against basically all of my life's moral pillars. You know, I eat fully organic. Um, I was taking classes in sustainable agriculture and I was kind of just like, why are we treating this plant so much differently than all of the vegetables and herbs and fruits that I can grow outside in my garden? And so I started diving deep into the world of just microbiology, organic um, cultivation, sustainable, regenerative agriculture, and really just plugging myself into the industry in that sense of connecting with like-minded individuals, um, taking classes and workshops, certifications. Holistic Management International is one of those. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Alan Savory, but he does amazing work in Africa and reverse desertification and water usage and uh, holistic ranch management. Um, And then I went to UC Davis and got my master gardener certification and master composter and so that really helped connect all of the dots between ecology sustainable agriculture and cannabis cultivation
0: yeah totally totally so uh yeah it's kind of cool that you know organic and sustainable agriculture is kind of like the cutting edge uh, of agriculture these days so um good good to see that you're uh leading the charge there so you you had mentioned that you had uh you know, grown commercially, how was that experience uh for you? You know, good, bad? Um how how was it in, in that scene? And then also were you um, growing uh <laughs> after uh prop sixty four, which, you know, brought everything under the recreational uh banner?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So basically, um You know i was prop 215 for a couple years and then prop 64 went in voters voted on that in 2016 so um, 2017 i had the ability to research the laws regulations and figure out what we were going to do to transition from medical to recreational And basically, with Prop 64, it gave each individual locality the ability to create its own rules and regulations. And so where our medical business was set up um, after recreational legalization, it actually uh, made it illegal to grow there because it allowed each individual city to choose whether or not to allow cultivation. And so the town that I lived in um, decided not to Despite my greatest efforts to um, convince them otherwise, I went to every city council meeting, wrote letters to the mayor, went to the Department of Food and Agriculture, spoke at the Capitol. I mean, I was in it like really, really fighting for the small farmers because I just saw the writing on the wall for massive corporate overtake with the cannabis industry, which has strong roots in family farms um, you know, since the 60s or earlier in California. So, um, I was the second licensed, uh, recreational farm in Nevada County. Um, I moved my entire operation, um, out of the town into county limits. So it was out of town limits. And I mean, it was a huge undertaking, had to buy a house with property, follow, you know, all of the codes and ordinances to get it up to par and within regulation, um, It cost a lot of money. It was a huge headache, (laughs) but this was, you know, like I said, my passion, my dreams, my um, just what I wanted to be doing. And so I fought really hard for it. Uh, Unfortunately, my partner and I didn't see eye to eye, and we dissolved our relationship and our partnership and our business and ended up having to sell the farm. Um, But I continued farming In Nevada County um, allegedly a little uh, you know back and forth between traditional market and um, legal rec I tried my hardest Um, but the barriers to entry were very strong without owning at least 20 acres and California real estate is you know pretty expensive so after losing my farm, I kind of just started focusing on con- consulting and helping growers around the nation, around the world. I've had people in South Africa, Australia, um, and then pretty much every state that I try and help with consulting, business development, farm development, um, reducing overhead, writing SOPs that are up to par for you know regulators and um, licensing, et cetera, so... I mean, I've worked in all facets of the cannabis industry, and I would say my advice to people who are, you know, in pursuing this endeavor, especially in states that are coming online now, um, you really have to love it and fight for it, and nothing is going to be handed to you. It's not like the back in the day, um, Prop 215, where pounds were going for five grand, and you could, you know, get away with a little eight light and make a living. You really need to um, have a clear business plan, a budget, um, direction, and vertically integrate as much as possible to reduce those um, costs incurred from other people trying to take a piece of that pie. So, that's the long, long answer to a short question. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I, uh, I, I'm I, just listening intently and agreeing with pretty much everything that's uh, coming out of your mouth. And and that's awesome that you, you know, at least got to taste what commercial cultivation is like and you know all the hoops that need to be jumped through. And I 100% agree that if you're going to grow cannabis commercially like you gotta really love the plant. You gotta really have your heart in it because if you don't, I don't think it's gonna be worth it. There's just so many headaches, you know, even beyond what traditional agriculture really has to go through. Um, yeah, you gotta love the plant, which obviously you do, and uh, most of our, you know, fans do too. What uh, what pests are you seeing farms dealing with lately, and how are you consulting with them? uh to remedy the problem
1: um you know the hemp aphid has been a big one it arrived in 2016 um and it's pretty much spread all over the US at this point um Aphids are not a huge problem. I mean, they can get out of control and ruin your crop if they're um, left unchecked, but they're pretty easy to kill. And with an integrated pest management plan, um, you're really focusing on preventative measures um, to take, to make sure that things don't get out of control. Um, what I suggest to my clients and customers is really getting to know their ecosystem. And this is where my background in ecology comes into play because I look at the world as an ecosystem. Everything that we're interacting with has a um, process in that ecosystem, a role it plays, and you can figure out um, its life cycle, its breeding cycle, what consumes it, what it consumes, and from there, you can kind of make a plan, you know, when you need to spray, what you're spraying, um, what kinds of beneficial insects or um, biocontrols you bring in. I'm a huge fan of using biological biological controls, meaning um, I implement a lot of foliar sprays of uh, beneficial bacteria like a bacillus or trichoderma, a fungus, a very aggressive fungus, um, as well as different I mean, there's a ton of fungus biocontrols that you can use, and I'm a huge fan of those. Um, Most of the time, you can use them all the way up until flowering, depending on your state's regulations for microbial testing, which differs vastly. Um, I know I just spoke with somebody in Massachusetts who can't use biocontrols because of the testing requirements that have a minimum on your bacterial and fungal counts, which is such a shame because it's such a huge part of our life, right? I mean, everything in the world is really regulated and processed by microorganisms. We're just like, you know, facilitating them, where the body's holding all of those microbes. Everything is like that. So um, really just, you know, getting to know your ecosystem and having that IPM plan and putting the preventative measures in place and just having a holistic view and understanding of, how things work
0: really totally totally everybody's going to have different problems you know uh different states different you know localities are going to have microclimate uh variations and um you know to get your farm dialed in uh talk to alexandria uh what's your uh experience been with the hop latent viroid uh to my knowledge i've never dealt with it but have you dealt with it or seen growers combating it
1: um, I have definitely dealt with viruses and viroids. I didn't get it tested to determine which virus it was, but, um, over 50% of the genetics in California right now, um, is probably higher this year. This was last year that I was reading these statistics, um, are infected with some kind of virus or viroid. And, uh, my last year growing commercially was, uh, not this past year, but 2021, um, I received a batch of clones and some of them were infected with a type of virus or viroid. I wasn't sure, um, you know, I didn't get it tested to see which one. But you can tell, you can't tell during the vegetative phase necessarily. Um, It's during that transition that you start seeing stunted growth. Um, The plants don't get nearly as big. They have uh, kind of a mutated growth pattern where they're very rigid um and then you start seeing the uh mosaic patterning on some of the fan leaves and so this is because um plants use chloroplast to combat viruses and so you'll see a lack of chlorophyll in those leaves where the mosaic patterning of like chlorosis that which is the yellowing Um, and this is a telltale sign of a virus so i knew that i had it and when you're growing in living soil where you have a ton of bugs and fungal networks, you can spread the virus um, through vectors because, as you know, a vector is like any kind of wound, either from mechanical pruning, like with uh, cheeky mosses or scissors, um, or aphids or any insect bites that can transfer the virus, Um, as well as, in some rare cases, uh, mycorrhizal network of fungi that have a relationship with your plant's roots can even, if the virus gets down there, it can live within that fungal network and pass on to other plants that attach to it. So that was, um, yeah, pretty scary for me. But the thing is, with living soil, you're also increasing your plant's um, resistance to stress and having a ton of microorganisms um, and bugs there. They'll also help combat viruses and viroids, and this is because they increase your plant's hormones. Um, Specifically, jasminates and ethylene um, do a really good job of combating viruses and viroids in plants. There's a ton of studies done on different plant um, hormones, stimulating um, jasmonic acid, methyl, jasmine, um, really limiting the transfer of viruses to other plants, and as well as inhibiting them from spreading throughout the plant. So really, I just try to boost those um, hormones, and this can be done with a variety of methods. I actually just wrote a paper on jasminates and how you can increase them in your plants. It is available on my Patreon. Um, that's Queen of the Grown, patreon.com and I write monthly articles like this, um, just diving deep into the science behind plant biology, IPM, um, nutrient uptake, viruses, whatever it is. I love nerding out on all of these different topics, so this is a great opportunity for me to share what I learn in an easily digestible article. Um, I try not to use a ton of like scientific nomenclature and just keep it, you know, keep it simple, because I feel like that's the best way to reach a wider
0: audience. Yeah, that, well, that's awesome to hear that there's some hope for combating uh, viruses, because, you know, I'd say kind of the general consensus is, you know, once you have it, you have it, and there's no dealing with it other than maybe, like, outgrowing, um, you know, like, uh, you know, taking cuts off of, you know, your your farthest, uh, you know, uh, branch and, and in the hopes that that will be a, a virus-free cut. Um, so that's cool that there's some, uh, you know, actual methodology to, to combating that virus.
1: Yeah, and I would say definitely um, uh, tissue culture cloning is your best bet at eradicating or obtaining a clean cutting. And you can actually do this at home pretty simply. Um, I've also posted a recipe on my Patreon for how to tissue culture at home using things that you can buy from the store or order on the Internet. And um, basically, you're only using, you know, like an inch, an inch and a half of um, new tissue growth, which is like the apical meristem, wherever the newest growth is coming out of. You have less of a chance of grabbing any um, tissue that has the virus infected within it. That's the crazy thing about viruses, is that they... um, They can move throughout a plant, but they also don't have to be throughout the entire plant. It could be um, isolated to one region. And so that's why testing is so um, difficult, because sometimes wherever you're grabbing um, your test tissue sample, it possibly could not have the virus. And so um, this is the best way, I would say, to trying to make sure that you get a clean cutting. Yeah.
0: One of our guests from uh, season one was uh, Bill Graham with MicroClone and he he is a big advocate of of using um uh that methodology to uh get over the hump of, of the virus. Um cool. So moving on, uh you've been doing these living soil master classes around the country at uh various, you know, hydro stores it appears. How did you come up with that idea? Uh what did it take to put together and what can people expect from those classes?
1: Well, this is um, great questions. I actually am doing the Living Soil Masterclass with Growcast Podcast. Um, And so it was kind of his idea because we've been working together, um, you know, over the last three years creating content. And he knows how passionate I am about living soil. And he really wanted to you know, my transition from commercial cultivation into consulting and education, he wanted to help me, you know, get out there and teach more people and, you know, get in front of a wider audience. And so it was his idea to do this class. And he just said, you know, do you want to put together a class? And I'm I love research and presentations. And I was like the kid in college, like I loved, you know, freaking doing, teaching a class, sitting up in front of, you know, everybody and being like, oh, look at all these cool things I've learned. Let me teach you. Um, so this was just like a perfect opportunity, um, especially after my background with the UC Davis Master Gardeners. I had a lot of experience teaching workshops and it kind of just fell naturally um, into my lap. And so I put together a curriculum and, um, you know, kind of just tried to figure out what is... The the information that would best help home growers and commercial cultivators alike. And so each class that we teach um, is geared and shifted towards whoever my audience is. Because sometimes, like in Illinois, it was, you know, all home growers and tents, very small um, operations and inside. And so I shift to what the curriculum that's taught according to who is in attendance and really, this is just something that I have been able to do from my own experience and helping clients in all different situations. Um, but basically, the class is huge. I mean, it's a, a huge overview of all of the processes um, that take place in a true living soil. I mean, we start out from the basics of soil science, how soil is formed, the difference between potting mix and soil. Um, All the way through to the different microorganisms, how you can influence them, different microbial products that are targeted for cannabis growers, uh, different amendments, and how best to utilize your own native soil or make your own potting mix. Um, We get into the nitty gritty. It's really fun. Um, The kids or students bring in soil samples, and so I get to look at everyone's soil sample under a microscope live and identify the different uh, microbes, bacteria, fungal spores, nematodes, protozoa, amoebas. um, And, you know, every time we see a nematode, that's probably, like, the most exciting thing. Everyone's like, oh, wow, the nematode's eating bacteria. It's, you know, swimming across the screen. And it's like I'm hunting the nematode live, and everyone gets really, really excited and wants to take a picture with their nematode. So... (laughs) Uh, it's really fun. It's a really good time.
0: Nice. Uh how long do those classes last for?
1: Um they sometimes it depends on how many people are there and how many questions, but we shoot for like 5 hours, but it's been up to like 7 or eight hours in, a, in Denver Man, that was a really long class I almost lost my voice from talking so much
0: Yeah, so it's a so it's a pretty deep dive People should, you know, bring a lunch And, and, and be prepared for a full day of learning Awesome
1: Oh yeah, yeah Awesome All day
0: um, So I, I've noticed, uh, you know, checking out your social That you're a big fan of de-leafing uh, your plants But then also turning those leaves into fertilizer How does that work?
1: Yeah, so um, part of the pillar of regenerative agriculture, right, is like closing those loops. And so what you mean by that is um, reducing as much waste as possible. And I'm a huge fan of deleafing just for airflow, um, part of IPM, especially outside because bugs love to live on the underside of your leaf, Um, just removing any old dead growth. And so um, each of those leaves holds the nutrients, that your plant requires in the ratio that they require. And so why throw away those nutrients and not reuse them and feed them back to your plant? And so um, when I was growing large scale in California, um, I had goats. I had like seven goats and up to 20 chickens at a time. And so I would feed all of my defoliation to the goats and to the chickens, and then I would take their bedding and manure and compost that and then use the compost in my gardens again. And so it had, you know, that full closed loop cycle. Totally. Um, But now that I'm growing small-scale, I'm just growing in my garage in in a couple tents right now um, because I moved to northern Washington, and it is frigidly cold. And so um, just, you know, right now it's inside only. I'll I'll try some things outdoor next summer. But um, I'm experimenting with the Jadum fertilizer, so just taking those leaves and, um, you know, fermenting them basically and then using that to feed back into my living soil beds nice. does,
0: does that take a long time the fermentation process
1: um it doesn't take too long i mean a few months uh they say that a year is like the best Um, for this nutrient but you can use it it depends on which method you're using if you're doing like um, you know adding sugar or if you're just purely just water leaf mold um, letting the microbes break it down so right now I'm about two months in and I'm gonna wait at least six months before I test it out Um, I do this also with fish Um, we're a big fishing family and so um, any uh, all body parts of the leftovers of the fish, the head, skin, spine, guts, we save and um, combine with like sawdust and uh, microbes, compost, water with well, the lake water that we caught them from or river water. And then that's been sitting in my garden shed for I would say six months now Uh, I need to go through and strain that I'm not looking forward to the straining part but it's
0: (laughs) got to be a little fishy (laughs)
1: yeah it is a little it actually doesn't smell bad um you know, right now, but I'm sure once I'm pouring it out and straining it, that it's going to not smell great. Luckily, I have a gas mask, um, a welding mask from working in the fires and the ash in California. We always had to wear masks while working on the farm, so I'll use that while I get fishy. Yeah,
0: smart, smart. Uh, (laughs) Speaking of uh, smart, you've been a SmartPot user over the years. Uh, What sizes have you used, and what do you like about growing in a SmartPot versus any other container?
1: Yeah, well, I would say definitely the air pruning, um, not getting root-bound or root-rot. And uh, I've grown in 7 and 10-gallon when I first started growing using salts, um, and then I switched... I quickly switched to a larger bed, um, and then I've also grown in the 400 gallons. My first outdoor plants were grown in 400 gallon smart pots, and that was pretty cool. I drove the skid steer and lifted up like the whole tote of soil, and then had somebody like cut it open over the 400 gallon smart pot, and it fit perfectly. One tote of soil in there. Um, This is before I was, you know, utilizing native soil, very expensive way to fill your smart pot. Um, But it was really cool. The plants did great. Um, I prefer, obviously, the larger volume of container size because you're going to have more. uh, It's a larger ecosystem. There's going to be more microorganisms. Um, I'm a huge fan. The bigger the roots, the bigger the shoots, the bigger the fruits. So um, big plants, big
0: pots. Totally. Yeah, uh, your your top growth is equivalent to how strong your root development is and how many, how many roots you have and uh, their uptake abilities. So awesome. Um, so you, you seem to have a pretty good grasp on the national cannabis marketplace. What do you think will be the biggest challenge for uh, cannabis cultivators when it's legalized by the feds?
1: Um, More taxes. Uh, Pretty much every federal legalization bill has, like, had a minimum of a 25% tax that would go to the federal government. Yeah, and
0: that's on top of Um, any state taxes.
1: Yeah, and California alone is, like, $146 per pound, not to mention you have your local county and city taxes um, plus testing, and then um, some states, require you to go through distributors, instead of direct farm to consumer market. Um, So really, I would say just, you know, more costs are going to incur. And then it's also opening up the playing field to companies that otherwise haven't dabbled in cannabis yet because of it being federally illegal. Um, So but I do see positives as well because we'll see interstate commerce, which is really a limiting factor. When you just think of basic economic supply and demand, you can't reach a consumer if you can't cross state lines. And so with places like Oklahoma and California that are producing huge quantities of cannabis, way far more than what their um, localities could consume, we could see that helping them, um, especially small farmers who are able to engage uh, an audience with good marketing and storytelling abilities, kind of like how the craft beer movement has been able to. Um, this could really help some small farmers get through and, you know, stay afloat while they're combating these multi-state operators who basically have millions of dollars to bleed, um, You know while they're waiting for federal legalization so we'll see how that plays out I'm not sure when that's gonna happen I mean that's all politics it really just goes back to money and if enough cannabis Uh, multi-state operators are going to put in that money into lobbying and paying for federal legalization yeah
0: i think the alcohol lobby is probably pumping a lot of money into politicians to be against uh cannabis legalization um just from law of economics you know if you only have a hundred dollars to spend and you know now cannabis is legal and you can spend half of that on cannabis well that's Uh, less money that's going towards your alcohol budget. So um, we all know Big Alcohol views cannabis as something that they might, you know, ultimately want to jump into, and some brands have. Uh, But I think overall alcohol views cannabis as as a nemesis. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I would have thought legalization would have been sprung by now, but who knows? We'll see. Um, so getting into uh, getting back into regenerative cannabis, uh, can that be a more cost-effective way of cultivation? Um, and do you see the industry moving in that direction, or if not, what is holding people back?
1: So regenerative agriculture, in general, costs more. Or I'm sorry, costs less um, in resources but it costs more in labor so that means that yes you're going to be spending a lot less money but you're going to be putting in a lot more time to get those systems in place especially in the beginning Um, the beginning is going to be um, where you're putting in a lot of time building up your soil putting those processes so that you can digest nutrients and your plant is Um, just doing it, achieving its highest potential, and those first few years are critical to building up your soil, and then it kind of maintains, but you're still putting in so much um, time and labor. It's very labor-intensive, and so I would say that that is the biggest um, drawback, is that it isn't as easily commercialized, where you can, sure, you can, you know, um, plant in the ground fields and you know, cover crop and add compost and be doing these things um, on a large scale. But it's a lot more time intensive and you're going to be having to pay more in labor. Um, So a lot of people would rather, you know, take the easier route of just feeding salts and not building up their soil. Um, But if, you know, you listen to scientists around the world are saying that, We may only have 60 harvests left um, in our soil with how we are extracting the resources and nutrients and reducing our topsoil at the rate that we're going. And so I think that regenerative agriculture as a whole is gaining momentum as um, folks really pay attention to climate change and um, just the, the changes that we're seeing in our natural world and ecosystems. And providing a future for our kids. Um, it's not really, I don't think, our lifetime that we're gonna see, but maybe our children's, our grandchildren um, that are really gonna be paying the consequences of our agricultural methods right now. Um, that's really where, like, my background in environmental science, I was taught, you know, I remember my first class there, like, the biggest um, impacts on the environment are agriculture and fishing. And I instantly became, like, a vegetarian. I am not now. I now see, like, the purpose of um, holistic ranch management and that everything has its place. But just... There's an awakening definitely going on and being more conscious. And I would say that the best thing a consumer um, or even a producer can do is vote with their dollar and how they spend it, because money makes the world go round. And so by supporting your small regenerative farmers, going to your local farmer's market, you're making a huge impact. You're you're paying a farmer's child like their, their school tuition, um, whereas you know, you're buying from a corporation, it's just going to the CEO. Um, And so you're really having an impact on your community by supporting local, supporting regeneratively grown. Um, There's definitely some great uh, certifications that cannabis growers um, can get, like Sun and Earth Certified, which is owned by Dr. Bronner's. And basically it's a certification of regenerative agriculture techniques being used to grow cannabis. So um, as a consumer, this is what I would recommend, like looking and asking, um, you know, your bud tender, you know, the methods, who this, who grew this, what methods were they using, if it's important to you. Um, And then doing your part at home, like everyone can compost. That's like my life's goal is to get everyone to compost. And every time somebody tells me that they started composting because of me, it just makes my heart grow a little bigger. Um, 40% of the landfill could be composted at home. It's super easy and simple to do. Um, Anybody who needs help with it, I have workshops, resources, PDFs. Feel free. That's free because I just want everyone to compost. Um, And that's like a key pillar to regenerative ag is composting your waste. Waste not, want not.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. We weren't big composters until we got a house this last year. And now we fill up this tabletop thing uh, with compost pretty much in a day, and that goes into outdoor uh, compost sack. And, yeah, that's just free food for all of your plants. And otherwise that would just be going to a landfill forever. So um, that's awesome to see that you're a big composting advocate because uh, I am, and we are as a company uh, as well. And, you know, just being a small company, we align with, you know, the small growers out there. Yeah, we have, you know, the MSOs as our customers as well. But, you know, we just have a soft spot spot in our heart for uh, the little guy uh, because, you know, they're always going to be the underdog in in the corporate world. So, um, yeah, vote with your dollars. You know, that extra dollar that you might pay for an eighth is going towards, you know, a family farm uh, versus some CEOs, you know, trust funds. So uh, totally online with you there. So on that note, uh, Alexandria, it's been really cool to to get to know you and learn more about, you know, what your kind of life mission is. Um, can you tell people where they can find you uh, online and then social media-wise?
1: Yeah, queenofthesungrown.com, um, patreon.com slash queenofthesungrown. That's where I'm updating most of my exclusive content. Um, like I said, articles, recipes, IPM. Um, I do a weekly Discord live chat, answer personalized questions. Um, and then Instagram and YouTube at queenofthesungrown. Um I am always happy to talk shop, send me a DM, whatever. I love helping people grow um, better, smarter, and more efficiently. Um, one last thing I want to say about composting: smart pots are excellent sources for uh, home vermicompost bins. I love using the smart pot. It's great um, for drainage. You don't have to worry about drilling holes. Um, and if you cover it with a mulch or a wet burlap sack, you can just, you know, throw your waste into the smart pot directly, and the worms love it. Um, so that's an excellent way if you don't have the space or room. To do a full compost bin, you can get a small smart pot and just throw some worms in there.
0: 100%. Um, you know yeah. what's really cool is I was actually kind of doing doing that at my previous uh, residence, and I had like a I think it was a 15 gallon that I was using as my compost sack uh, with just a ton of worms. And what was cool is every couple of weeks I would pick up the smart pot because it was on a, a concrete. You know, patio, and there would be like five worms, you know, that the eggs had kind of washed through the fabric and then hatched. And so there was like always five or six worms just chilling underneath my smart pot uh, on the concrete there. So I'd quick grab them, throw them into various other pots. So yeah, worms love smart pots. Absolutely. Oh yeah, nice. Well, thank you, you so much uh, for <laughs> joining us on the podcast. Uh, we look forward to you know following your, your journey uh, going forward.
1: Awesome. Thank you for having me.